Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Recently, I got a call from a man in the South. He said his name was Jeff B., and he was a big fan of WNPR. I consider every word that Harriet Jones says to be gospel. You know what I miss? The real-life survival guide with Bruce Barber? They didn't give that a fair chance. Hey, how's Jeff Tyson working out as the new producer for Lucy Nelpathetchel? I noticed Lori Mack hosts Morning Edition on Fridays. She has a sweet voice. I bet she's a nice person. Down where I live, there ain't hardly anybody who knows about Duwali Saikatau or Ophabia Quist Arkton or Nell Greenfield Voice or Yuki Naguchi or nothing. I think that Chris Bailey I is doing started to enjoy my conversations with Jeff B. It's nice when somebody pays attention, but some of Jeff B.'s ideas were a little weird. I found out the Large Hadron Collider was built for the express purpose of awakening an Egyptian god. You can go ahead and tell Mr. Patrick Scahill about that. I have information about Jay-Z being a time-traveling vampire, which I emailed to John Dankosky, but he didn't do nothing, possibly because there wasn't no Vermont or Rhode Island angle. You know, the Denver airport ain't no real airport. It's some kind of hell Jeff mouth. B. was he eager to have me look into some of this. He wanted me to come down to where he was and maybe check out some of these rumors. He said I might get an addictive podcast out of it. When the cast of Saved by the Bell murdered Hunter S. Thompson, the people I work with is as mean as snakes and dumber than rocks. That's just how they are, and I reckon they're up to their bridges in some of the conspiracies I've been telling you about. This place is poop town. That's why I need you to... Excuse me, stop. Mr. Sessions, General Sessions, Attorney Sessions, what am I supposed to call you? I, I, I just can't drop everything I'm doing and go down to D.C. You have to. I, I ain't doing so good here. I got mixed up with some bad folks. I told you, this is poop town. It's doo-doo city. It is number two-ville. Oh, no. I think that Steve Bannon fella is walking down the hall right at me, mad as a bull. So I decided to go. The thing is that I'd grown fond of Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, this lonely, peculiar man, frightened of marijuana users and dogged by paranoid visions. The story I would uncover was not the one I expected. It had Russians and, and cyber criminals and a strange man named Devin, plus a volatile figure known as Spicy. Doo-Doo City changed me, and, and that change started right when I checked in at the Poop Town Best Western and found, sitting on my bed, a blonde woman with her legs and feet tucked under her. As she looked at her phone, her, her name was Colin McEnroe. 
That's right. Well, if you've been listening to S-Town, uh, that will sound a lot funnier to you than it probably did otherwise. Um, and so, uh, but you, you can catch up. You'll get it eventually. All right. So we're here uh, today on The Nose with Jim Chapterlin, Emmy Award-winning musician, producer, composer, recording engineer, and a patient advocate for people with rare cancers, Teresa Kramer, writer, editor of eContent magazine, and founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for disgruntled adults of Connecticut, and Kate Russian, a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet and editor and writer and a teaching artist for the Connecticut Humanities. Uh, and so we're going to begin by talking about S-Town. S-Town is uh, a somewhat awaited and anticipated um, product by more or less the creative team uh, and producing team behind This American Life and Serial, uh, although it is specifically the work of a producer named Brian Reed. Uh, who you don't know probably from any of those things. Uh, the New York Times writes, some serial fans may be disappointed to learn that the crew's latest offering is not a straightforward whodunit. They shouldn't be. S-Town turns out to be much more interesting than that. S-Town is not another tale of a journalist trying to solve a murder with just a microphone and a little elbow grease, and thank God. Instead, S-Town transcends the podcast procedural with a destabilizing narrative structure which one small town mystery in which one small town mystery leads to another, all surrounding Mr. McLemore and his acquaintances. There is that murder, but also a treasure hunt, a land grab, and a mysterious benefactor. Mr. Reed's investigation turns psychological and emotional into how people come to be branded as bad uh, and the hidden relationships among men in the rural South. Well, that's about as far as we could go without a spoiler. We're trying not to spoil anything, and there's like one of the big spoilers comes in episode two of seven episodes, so we have to sort of dance around uh, certain things. But, uh, Teresa, I know you were, you know, as big a fan of cereal as there could be. Mm-hmm. You and I went to see live cereal at the Bushnell. Uh, and, um, and so I knew that you would devour this right away, which mm-hmm. you did, I think. Did you do it in one day? I did it in one day. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I work from home, so I either listen to the radio or podcast while I'm listening anyway. So it was basically a work day full of this podcast for me. And and it, and it is, I mean, going into it with the expect, expectation that it'll be the next serial mm-hmm. is both a good thing and a bad thing. Because it isn't that, but there's something pleasing about the fact that it doesn't try to. Right. You know, I think, but what people liked about serial, they will also like about this to some degree because um i mean there was no satisfactory ending to serial i think this actually has a much more satisfactory ending and the second season of serial was kind of blah right so if you wanted something as compelling as that first season i think this is a much better attempt at that than yeah. season two of actual serial i just want to record it i really liked the second season of serial <laughs> but I, I i guess i'm probably a little bit of a minority it certainly didn't deliver the oomph uh, of serial, Kate. One of the things that you talked about as we were getting ready for this is, I mean, they dropped all seven episodes at once, which you, I think, thought was a good thing in the sense that not everything about the first episode or two made you think about committing yourself to uh, a lifetime of seven episodes. That's right. I confess, I'll confess mm-hmm. it right here. This is the first podcast I've ever binge listened to. And I would have stopped about 40 minutes in if it hadn't been an assignment because I could feel John B.'s manipulation and wanting to be at the center of attention and looking down his nose at other people using his intelligence and his knowledge to kind of put down other people. And about 40 minutes in, I'm like, "Mm, 
I, I, I think he called the guy under false pretenses, uh, Brian Reed. And so I would have stopped, and I'm glad I didn't because I could not have predicted anything it turned out to be. So, uh, Jim, she's talking about John B. McLemore. He is the focus of this series, um, a genius, a crank, a polymath, uh, a man with a really confusing personal life, uh, a man uh, obsessed with climate change and economic uh, apocalypse. Um, and I'm, I, I'm still not describing him very well because he's very hard to describe. I think we all kind of know somebody – a little bit like this, who kind of makes a point of not fitting in and, and has almost legendary powers of some kind, intellectual powers. But in another way, we don't know anybody like John B. Because John B. is cloaked in the veneer of southern rural manhood of some sort. Um, yeah, and maybe because he's such a contrarian, he's contrary to everything. I have to say this is the first podcast that I committed to. Um, Teresa got my wife hooked on uh, some murdering podcast where women like a coffee clatch murder thing. My favorite my murder. My favorite murder, right. And I listened to it for a while. I was like, no, this is not for me. But this, uh, unlike Kate, I was pretty hooked. And I was hooked initially because – uh, I'm a sucker for dialect and and uh, and accents, and his is uh, profoundly entertaining. I agree, he's totally manipulative, and I, and you can sort of sense that early on. But just the breathy, the here, uh, the H's <laughs> yeah. is, is breathy, mm -hmm. and the vowels are so drawn out out in the yard when he's out in the yard, and he has to take a tums. All the vowels are like. Five times what we – and especially in contrast with the, the reporter, Brian Reed, who's basically a white liberal Yankee who talks like we do, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, there's some intrigue and exotica that are, that's embedded in this southern culture on the skids so narrative. Jim's done an uh, impressive uh, – I, I was trying to kind of capture the way John B. McLemore talked when I was recording that intro, and I couldn't do it. Uh, it's actually – it's not a typical Southern accent, and, and uh, we're going to play a little bit of it just so can, uh, people can hear this voice that threads its way through all seven episodes. This, this whole area needs to be defined. You know, if you look at the demographics charts of the state of Alabama and go over the poorest counties, Bibb County is maybe the fifth worst county to live in. We are one of the child molester capitals of the states. We have just an incredible amount of police corruption. We have the poorest education. We've got 95 churches in this damn county. We only have two high schools, no secondary education. And we got Jeepus, because Jeepus is coming. And global warming is a hoax. You know, there's no such thing as climate change and all that. Yeah, I... Uh, I'm in an area that just hasn't advanced, for lack of a better word. I don't have to eat a Tums here. Sorry about that. Oh, it's one of those awful cherry-flavored ones. That would be the first one to hop out. Is your stomach bothering you? <laughs> oh, I have constant acid reflux. You know, I've had it all my life. So why, can you tell me, why did you email me? Well, you know, the original, um, the original reason, which I gave you, was just some of the things I had heard about you know, some of the goings-on down here. 
All right, so that's uh, John B. McLemore talking to Brian Reed. Brian Reed is to uh, to S Town what uh, Sarah Koenig was to Serial. Uh, he is our um, moderator and our narrator and our guide through the underworld. Uh, John B. McLemore, who's this man who's kind of contacted him out of out of the blue, uh, and and asked him if he would come down and try to solve a murder, which is not something you necessarily do with a stranger. Uh, it, it, he's the person who becomes this object of fascination for us. I would, I mean, I think it's fair to say, although there are a lot of things um, that we're trying to understand here, Teresa, in this mm-hmm. podcast, mostly. We're trying to understand this very, very complicated man. Yeah, and I think um, so. It, during our emails, one of the things I wrote to you guys about was that I'd read this um, this review of the movie *Hell or High Water*, which is sort of a complicated. It's it's a movie about two brothers from Texas basically trying to save their family farm. My favorite last year. Yeah. My favorite movie. It was a very that. good movie. And one of the things that review said <clears throat> is that we need more complicated stories about the South, right? We just get stereotypes most of the time. And we get a lot of stereotypes here. People confirm stereotypes, but John at the same time is just blowing them out of the water left and right. And so you don't really... Um, so it's hard to get a grasp on him so often, and he does these things that sometimes seem contradictory to what he says. He does things that are contradictory to what he says or the values that he espouses, right? So you're just constantly trying to figure out what his deal is. I, I have spent a good deal of time in Alabama where this thing is set, um, and one thing that I was reminded just listening to it is the cadence of the way that people talk. And it, it's not just the accent, and it's not even just the choice of words. They really do speak in a kind of pentameter or something. That it's like they're trying uh, – the dumbest poop kicker you know, who appears in this, and there are plenty to choose from uh, in this radio documentary. When he talks, you can almost hear him reflexively adding – you know, a couple of syllables, usually the word effing, uh, <laughs> just in order to make the sentence spill out with a particular rhythm here. Damn but, also. Right. Damn. Everything is damn. Everything's damn. Everything. Everything's damn. Damn podcast. But, you know, Kate, this is something that you brought up, and I think you, I had sort of the same thought, which is that it's hard to make seven hours or so of programming about a small town in Alabama and talk so little about race. Uh, now, mostly this, uh, this town is something like 93% white, I think we're told near the end. But really, there's, I can think, one moment in episode two where they're in this kind of back room of a, of a club with a bunch of people who seem like the same people who are in Dwight Yoakam's band in Sling Blade. Uh, and there's one guy who really professes himself to be a white supremacist and kind of lays it all out. And then you pretty much don't hear about race until the last 15 minutes of this. And, and I found that to be odd. Just having spent time in Alabama, it, it's just so much there in the coding of the place. Yeah, I, I found that odd, too. I was in Alabama this past summer, and the history of buying and selling men, women, and children is right there in your face, along with the long, dark roads and the isolation and I found um, uh, Brian Reed's choice not to do more about the racial dynamics odd because there is so much excruciating detail about other parts of uh, John B.'s life. And he tells us that John B. has some of the same attitudes that he expresses about African Americans and women, but Brian Reed decides not to let us hear 
uh, John B. speak about that in his own words, and I did find that very odd. Yeah, I mean, in, in the final episode, um, there's a, a former town clerk who's talking <clears throat> about um, the turnip green suppers, you know, mm-hmm. they have these term, turnip green suppers, and I had this sudden flash, too, because uh, I used to be down in Alabama with my wife's family, uh, who are lovely people, and, and were from, part of the family's from Mobile. And we'd go down to uh, Gulf Shores, which is called the Redneck Riviera. Uh, and I would—I was the cook, so I would. Get, we had a big, huge grump, a bunch of people in a beach house, and I was the cook, and I'd just drive up inland a little bit and look for kind of a truck farmy kind of place. And so the, I one day, one day I happened to find at a little sort of kind of like a farmer's market some collard greens, and I like collard greens. I like cooking collard greens, so I got a couple bags of them. I brought them back, and all the Southerners looked at them. And there was like this very awkward moment. And finally they explained to me that in the South, white people eat turnip greens and black people eat collard greens. And they were uncomfortable with this. I mean, they were like really uncomfortable. And then they said, well, it's Colin. You know, of course we're going to eat it. Of course we're going (laughs) to eat what he cooks. But it was – it was like they had to overcome something pretty big mm-hmm. to do this. Now, think about that. <laughs> well, that's yeah. interesting, yeah. The, the idea of overcoming, because I think John B.'s story at its heart is a man who's trying to overcome his entire life, basically. Yeah. He's yeah. trying to fight his way out of this town unsuccessfully. He's trying to change the town unsuccessfully. He's trying to change people's minds more or less unsuccessfully. And so we see him fail in a lot of different ways. Um, but to me, sort of like... Um, the sort of southern white guy failing at not being a racist is a thing we've heard a thousand times. And, you know, the southern white guy failing at teaching his town about climate change is not something we've heard a thousand times, you know. So it's like it's just a little more compelling. Yeah, I'd push back a little bit on on two points. One, I don't think John is is even remotely trying to leave the town. Mm. I think he's trying to change the town in earnest. But I don't know who – I don't know that I understand who he is fully having listened to, to those. And to Kate's point about the race part, I, I totally agree that it's there. I think what this is is a much more microscopic look where, where Brian Reed, the narrator, reporter, has chosen to zoom in past those things, giving a slight acknowledgement to them and giving us a glimpse of – of the fork in the road that happened when in the post-slavery world we see white Jim Crow stuff happening and poor white people being placed as oppositional to, to African Americans. And that dynamic plays out over, over a century or two and, and exacerbates racism when in fact that, that culture is being dictated by – plantation owners and, and farmers who are saying, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would be in the position of that black man. And these are those guys. And he's zoomed past that into a little more microscopic look at who these people are. Well, so so I, 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 that's yeah, just my I, take on I, it. I hear what you're saying. but I, I don't I, think it's right or wrong. It's just yeah, I think a ch- an I've, editorial choice. I feel like there are these kind of like ghosts of the no doubt. convict yeah, yeah farm laborers and the lynching victims and and Reed has this conversation with the wealthy 
lumber owner. Oh, well, he would be one of the perpetrators the of this, right? Of his of his uh, company is K three, and um, right, right. Yeah. Reed yeah. brings up the name and says, "Oh, is this a reference to a certain white supremacist group?" And the guy kind of laughs at him and says, "Well, it doesn't bother me." So I'm, my point is, why would no, I think what he, he says bring is, it up? He says, you, are, he says, you, I suppose you're one of those liberals we right. upset. The lefties. You lefties that right. we upset in the most recent national election. That's what yeah. he says. And, and then he Trump. says, I don't, have, I don't have a problem with the, yeah, yeah, the right. echo. And, and there is the graffiti that they're, you're stumbling yes, across yeah. with KKK stuff everywhere. Right. And, and, my, and my question is, if, if, if Reed was going to point that out, it just seemed like kind of a offhanded way to challenge the owner about the name and why when there's so much else going on. In terms of why, I think it shows us where John B. came from, right? Like he's growing up around all of this stuff and he's not he's not perfect at um, getting past it, but he's tried to some extent and he and they talk about his evolution that he used to be sort of an openly right. racist person right and um and there's also he's sort of been the outcast around here himself for reasons that i'm not sure whether or not we're allowed to spoil um but well, let's try not to spoil anything okay <laughs> so but in a way though yeah. i feel like we're cheating people of how much fun and how interesting this thing is. Yeah. But, but anyway, go ahead. Well, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the production is brilliant. The music is great. The way the narrative unfolds just keeps you right. going. And the contrast between, I, th- I think it's uh, Brian Reed is ironically named because his voice is this reedy little thing. I almost, almost feel like sometimes he's on the verge of tears, but it's not. It's just an affect of the way he speaks. Contrasted with the sort of poetic way that we as sort of Yankees perceive Southern dialect. I mean, there's a reason we listen to a lot of music from the South. There is a poetry inherent in in both the cadence and this drawn out vowel, breathy H way that they talk. It's, well, it's yeah. almost like Russ Cole. And, and we start, <laughs> you know, and not to, not to get too convoluted, but... The first couple of episodes, I feel like I'm headed straight to Carcosa. Right. So I think that one thing, Teresa, that he gets really well, and I think one of the things that he is exploring is, okay, I'm going to generalize grotesquely uh, about the difference between the North and the South. But in the North, we all are kind of repressed and, you know, don't talk, don't Mm -hmm. often, we're not that friendly sometimes. We don't talk about our feelings that much, whatever. In the South, it's very different. But, and people are often very friendly and very ingratiating and cheerful. But I'll I'll tell you just a quick story. So my significant other was down visiting in another part of the South and was, uh, went over and visited a couple of uh, adult sisters that were known to the family she was visiting. She came back and she said, well, I was just over at the the Farthingale or whatever their names are, sisters. They're so lovely. They're so nice. And uh, one of the women uh, in the house said, oh, they're mean as snakes. That's just how we are, though. And, you know, and that's, um, you know, there's that famous sort of, you know, bless bless her heart. She just couldn't be fatter, you know. Um, and and But one of the things that the people in the South do is that. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that Brian Reed does in a very interesting way, he's a remarkable interrogator. He's like this guy who just kind of hangs around and you just keep expecting someone to hit him or (laughs) make him go away. He's so neutral about everything and and so – I mean I'm sure there's judgment in what he's doing Mm -hmm. because he has to make a decision. Right. 
And but he, he doesn't he doesn't give that judgment away. And there are moments where someone that he's been having relatively polite conversations with will suddenly say something that's shockingly violent, mm-hmm. will suggest defacing a corpse in a particularly yeah. alarming way or will suggest cutting the fingers off uh, of somebody else. A person that he's had a pretty cordial relationship will suddenly just demonstrate these really kind of shockingly violent impulses. Mm-hmm. And and I think he's done a really remarkable job that way of peeling back the onion of Southern cordiality. Yeah. I, I Like you, I've spent some time in the South on uh, some road trips. And, you know, I'd I find the same thing, right, that people are very outgoing, right, and they will talk to you just at the drop of a hat, but often you talk to them for a couple minutes and they're either shocking or rude in some way, you know, like they will often accuse you because you're from the north of being rude. That's one of the things, you know, like just to your face or... um I was once in Tennessee and a man I was talking to was like, oh, so you're from one of those blue states, huh? And I was just like, well, we were talking about cars, but um, thanks for bringing that up (laughs) right now. I was just having a pleasant conversation. And so that really rang true to me, this sort of like if you can get there's a difference between being outgoing and willing to talk to anybody and truly being a kind, friendly, open person. Right. Jim, one thing I wanted to ask you, I I wanted to sort of come back to that you were just bringing up. So you were mentioning Russ Cole. Russ Cole is the character played by Matthew McConaughey in the first season of True Detective and famously a man who um, he is a little bit uh, like John B. McLemore in the sense that he uh, doesn't necessarily present as a great, uh, as a highly educated man. John B., who is just exudes brilliance, was not a person who was able to function in college at all or get an actual education. But Russ, who's this, you know, police detective, will start talking about time being a flat circle oh, yeah. and everything you ever did. You're, gonna, you're all right, doing all, right. all, you know, and, and this thing is also a real meditation on time. And as it goes on towards episodes six and seven, this community of horologists, these people who study time and work on clocks uh, there in the Deep South and who, who and, and John B., who it, it is a meditation on time at no, I, I actually wrote that down, that it is uh, a melancholy take on the passage of time and that he's incredibly articulate about not only the, the mechanics of clocks and, and but actually the passage of time. And it's clearly weighing on him as he reflects on his life. Uh, the, the passage of time seems to be one of the things that preoccupies him most at some fundamental level of who he is and – and how to spend that time, how to literally calculate the amount of time you have, and how are you, how are you supposed to spend that? And, and speaking of time, Kate, I do feel like we did this way too fast. We binged these episodes as quickly as we could. Uh, they, were all, they all dropped on Tuesday. We've got through seven hours of them while leading the rest of our lives, more or less. And I do feel like this is something that we might want to take some time to have settle in. You know, even... How can I say this without doing a spoiler? I know I can do it. But it turns out that John B.'s interest in time and clocks is, a, is tied to his fate uh, in a way that is, doesn't become evident until the final episode. But, it, but it's um, – uh, so well, That was should, pretty good. That yeah. was pretty good. You didn't spoil <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say another word here. But like that's something that I would really like to think about a little longer, you know? Yeah. You know, um, they – uh, someone in in the uh, podcast mentions some of the Southern writers, um, mm-hmm. some who are called Southern Gothic writers, and you know I I, I grew up very intrigued by um, 
O'Connor and Carson McCullers and the very first Truman Capote, Other Voices, Other Rooms, and they mentioned uh, Demosa Palm and Poe. And I, I love, I do love the way that we've got these sundials and clocks and all this symbolism that's actually part of his life. And I was also struck by this whole idea of plating things, gilding objects that aren't um, very valuable to make them appear to be more valuable than they, they are. I was fascinated by this personally because my, my dad was an electroplater, mm-hmm. and he actually used to uh, silver plate Kennedy dollars mm-hmm. and put them on a chain and give them as gifts. Uh, so I was quite um, fascinated by the way that imagery and that reality entered the story and added to this whole sense of this uh, Southern Gothic. And it made me question, well, what is that? What is Southern Gothic? And how is it different from American Gothic? How is it different from something that might happen in Eastern Connecticut? I, we have to move on. I have to be John B. McLemore and, and note the time and say we have to move on here. But yeah, I think Southern Gothic is right on point. I will quickly say that my favorite Southern Gothic character is a man named Uncle Jimmy uh, who has a bullet in his head from an unfortunate oh, cool. encounter. Uh, and, and he's uh, kind of in the background. He's never really on mic. He's usually in the background going, yeah, <laughs> buku stuff. He's got buku stuff. The buku really got me. I was like, that's the word you've held on to, Uncle Jimmy? Buku? Yeah, buku. Yeah. All right. We don't have buku time right here. we got to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about other things. Right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is The Nose uh, with uh, Teresa Kramer, Kate Russian, and Jim Chapdelaine. Uh, the Nose, like any other show that we do, gets uh, posted with all the audio up at wnpr.org slash Colin. You're going to want to look because I assume we will include pictures uh, of the leggings that Kate uh, that uh, Teresa is wearing today. <laughs> um, oh, Kate's got hers on, Kate, too. Kate, Kate claims that she's got I don't know you did that quick no, change. No, she took her jeans oh, off. They were no, really she, on under yeah. there. She went uh, legging on us. I'm so, taking uh, mine off next. All right. So, uh, so why are we talking about leggings? Maybe you know about this. It was kind of an internet sensation. But United Airlines refused admission onto an airplane uh, for two teenage girls who were traveling on on a I mean a pass. It was sort of a, they have a system like all airlines do, where um, employees and their families can fly for free if there's empty seats. Uh, but it turns out that employees and their families, even teenage girls who are their families, have to follow the United Dress Code. The United Dress Code does not permit uh, leggings. So they were uh, refused admission and uh, really kind of all hell broke loose. And oh, Jim, you were saying that the only thing that this really taught you is how easy it is to, to stir up a tornado on the Internet. It's to be um, <clears throat> the subject of leggings – well, it could not be any less interesting than anything in my life right now. Um, I, I can't imagine anything less interesting than this legging story, except that it's a perfect symptom of the age of rage um, and, and, and the displaced rage. I mean, there's places that we should be plenty outraged about, and we are— uh, You sound like John B. Macklemore. That's right. Well, 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 well uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's seeping in. I hope not too much of it. 
Um, Teresa and I have been meeting with our indivisible group, and, and I open every meeting and I say, look, at this, if this is a movement fueled on outrage, uh, we have to pace ourselves. But you can expect to be given a daily dose, and so far we have not been let down. But if you're living in a constant state of rage alert and you just see a story flash across your news feed and go, damn it, what do you mean they can't wear leggings? <laughs> Retweet, 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 outrage, outrage, outrage. Boy, now I'm a feminist. Um, it's easy to infer a lot from this, right? But it's an airline policy. People are traveling free. And it turns out to me to be pretty much a non-story except how people are easily outraged. Well, people had some fun with this too. Mm. Uh, the other airlines offered uh, various um, kinds of deals to people and, and and made a big deal of the fact that you can fly on their particular airline with leggings. And Except that, right, they, they too have the same policy for people traveling on those passes. It, it's just Well, that, then you have to follow right. the dress code. Right. There's a dress code um, yeah. for traveling, right. Yeah. But the dress code, their dress code does not yeah. include leggings. Oh, really? No. Yeah, that's oh, okay. what, I, that's what I, I'm relying, I think, on Vanessa. The only thing that scared me for, at first was my normal travel is uh, outfit is leggings and, and thigh-high <laughs> leather boots and an infinity scarf. So I was worried when I first saw this, but then I realized I'm not employed by an airline, so I'm good. Well, Vanessa Friedman writing in the New York Times says, you know, well, leggings are the excuse or the symbol, uh, but to focus on them, which, uh, which so much of the discussion has done since the news of the United Band broke, is to miss the point. The question at the heart of the issue is not whether leggings are appropriate for planes. The question is, as in all discussions of dress code, who gets to decide, the inv- individual or the group, uh, the individual or the business? She suggests that United was saying in its dress code, when you fly on our dime, you are representing our brand, and our brand takes flying with a certain amount of formality, the way it used to be taken. Um, uh, the flip side of this, I think, Kate, is that whole idea that there are companies that can and can and have and rather controversially say to women, well, high heels are part of our dress code. You have to wear high heels. You know, you can't wear the shoes of your choice. So in a way, what was happening was the dress code of United, which was something very familiar to their staff, suddenly got flung at some teenage girls and it looked a little different when that happened. And I'm wondering, was this really directed at the girls or was this really directed at the guys who might start wearing leggings on flights? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, so oh, what, well what, let's ask Colin. Do you <laughs> often wear leggings when you travel? I, I had to really think hard. We were having a staff meeting about this and talking about this as we got ready for the show, talking about the show to be way back on Monday. And I had to think about whether I knew what leggings were exactly. And were leggings in a, vogue when they made this rule? I was telling Jim this story last night. My boyfriend was putting um, laundry. He's putting laundry in the he's washing a, he's machine. He's a gesture. And yeah. I refused to get up and help because my cat was sitting <clears> on my lap. So he was just yelling to me from the washing machine about what could go in the washer and what couldn't. And he said, what about these leggings? And I was like, what leggings? And he went on for a while and described them to me. And I was like, oh, those are yoga pants. Those aren't leggings. And he was just like... I, I don't think there's a difference. <laughs> and but to me there is very clearly a difference because leggings to me are not pants, right? They're they're sort of a step above tights. Mm-hmm. They're like this thing that was made to go under something else and if I can see your butt like while you're wearing them, I don't approve. So, like, yeah. so it sounds like you actually <laughs> would prefer you, you that, people, high school. that people in leggings were not thrusting their butts in your face as they made their way down the aisle of uh, a Boeing. Yeah, I mean, do you remember a few years ago there was a Lululemon scandal because their yoga pants were see-through? That's right. right. Well, That's then right. don't wear see-through pants out in public 
of your own accord if you have a problem with these yoga pants being see-through. Like, well, it just, th- it doesn't make any sense. Do you have me. a different feeling about jeggings? I actually got a pair of jeggings Well, those are made pockets, to be pants. So they feel a little more formal. Yeah. Yes. And those are made to be pants, right? But, like, the leggings I have on today are pretty hefty. I didn't buy them for myself, but I suspect that they might be made for, like, exercise. So they're, they're not quite so see-through. But I have pairs that are... They are not. They are clearly not pants. If you, they need to be worn under a skirt, a dress, a long shirt, long sweater, whatever. But I would never go out in public in like a t-shirt and these pants. And not everyone has that rule for themselves. Well, I think the other thing that's being asked, Jim, is um, what what is a plane? What is a what is the sort of seating space in a plane? Which used to be also a somewhat formal place. Aren't you and I are old enough to remember that you kind of used to even kind of get a little dressed up to go on an airplane? Sure. Wow, you're going on an airplane. Um, you know, now people do dress with the idea that maybe they're going to sleep, maybe they're going to create this little nest for themselves. <laughs> right. So maybe even a person like Teresa who wouldn't wear, say, leggings to a restaurant is thinking, well, I'm not really in a restaurant. I'm in this place where I'm going to kind of just snuggle with myself. Or, or if you're traveling by yourself, sometimes you want to dress uh, uh, as repulsively as you can <laughs> to dissuade somebody from sitting next to you if it's not a full flight so that you can, in fact, stretch out during the flight. Yeah. So uh, you might want to be unshaven and unkempt and uh, not having bathed for a while. That's that's one of my strategies. I have a big pile of used handkerchiefs <clears throat> that I put in the middle seat there, and I just blow my nose on them, just like John B. That's, um, that's so John B. <laughs> so John B. All right. Do we have time to talk about the Pences? I guess we could quick. We could quickly do this, right? I don't know. I, I will say that Teresa and I had a meeting yesterday. You had a meeting uh-huh. about the Pences? Uh, uh, no, just the rules. two of us, yeah. uh, not with our spouses or significant oh. others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and we talked about uh, we we have a uh, I wouldn't call it a we have a political venture that we're sharing, and we had a meeting about it. There was no wine involved. Um, uh, there was nothing inappropriate. It was there a, was a it large was, piece of pizza. All right, yes, we, right. we have to contextualize this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in 2002, uh, Mike Pence told The Hill that he never eats alone with a woman other than his wife, and he won't attend events featuring alcohol without his wife, Karen Pence, by her side, by his side. And this is uh, she his counselor. Um, well, I, so sponsor. No, I I think this goes back to I, it's a rule that he has borrowed from Billy Graham. Uh, who had the same relationship with his wife, Ruth. Um, And I think what Billy Graham was thinking at the time is, you know, ministers kind of can get in trouble and famous pastors can get in trouble. We all lived through Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker and all this stuff. And and I think Billy Graham was saying, you know what, I'll just make this rule. And then, like, there's a whole bunch of things that just can't happen if I have this rule. And, And Pence is doing the same thing, too. The problem, Kate, is that it turns women into... This certain you know, it, it almost turns women back into Eve, you know, this person who can get you in trouble and has to be treated in a particular way. Yeah, it's 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 a, a frightening thought to me, especially since Vice President Pence just broke the tie in the Senate mm. to vote to defund the full range of reproductive health care to women. So I find the juxtaposition of the two stories to be rather alarming personally and for the future of our country. Well, he seems decades behind uh, uh, the rest of the country in terms of normal human interaction and <laughs> relations, right? I mean, he's a, like an Eagle Scout who never progressed beyond that 
either emotionally or morally. That's a sense I get. I know it sounds judgmental, but I'm here to judge. Well, what he's saying really is I can't be trusted, right? Yeah. Like, I, I yeah. mean, that's really what it is. It's but like I, my, I can't control myself enough. I have no impulse I don't know. I, so I, I agree need... with Colin. Colin is saying that it's something, saying something about women, that women are these alluring Mm-hmm. evil creatures Sirens who get you in trouble who will always right. appear with a snake but well, it, yeah. but you're also but if you if you felt about yourself that you had the capacity to just say no mm-hmm. in the Nancy Reagan term <laughs> in Nancy Reagan's terms um, you wouldn't have to have your chaperone with you all the time right like or you wouldn't live in constant right. fear yeah. that you were going to fall well mm-hmm. the, the real problem with it is that it's unfair and it's unequal mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if uh, if Teresa is a, a lobbyist and I'm a lobbyist mm-hmm. Mike Pence can meet with me but he can't meet with Teresa I mean he can't mm-hmm. have dinner with Teresa he can't be alone you know or or if we're capital staffers mm-hmm. you know what, whatever we are I have much more access to Mike Pence because I'm not a problem Teresa's and you don't have to make him a sandwich I don't have to make him a sandwich <laughs> so um um, t- to me, that's the problem. The problem is that it, it, it creates, it puts women in a, in a class where mm-hmm. they can't have equal access to the vice president. And it dovetails with Kate's point that it, it is, does everything this guy does diminishes women. Right. All right. Well, we have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to recommend some things to you. So stay tuned for that. Captain speaking. We're cruising at an altitude of 33,000 feet. I'm going to go ahead and turn off the fasten your seatbelt sign. And up here in the cockpit, I'm wearing Victoria Sport Anytime leggings. They're super soft and smooth with stretch. I repeat, they are super soft and smooth with stretch. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McLeggings and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is wearing tights. The part of Bill Curry was played by Karen Pence. We'll be back on Monday to scramble through the news of the weekend. And now, back to Colin. All right. So, yes, and it's not McPants today. It's McLeggings. Um, all right. So, but we're off leggings now. We're on to other things. We're on to recommendations of things. Um, who wants to go first? Teresa Kramer, what have you got for us? Um, I'll endorse a book I'm reading called Perfect Little World by Kevin Wilson. It's the story of um, a young single mother who gets sort of roped into this sort of communal child raising experiment and um it kind of it struck a chord with me while listening to s-town because one of the stories mentioned in that by a writer was a rose for emily Mm -hmm. and she's actually working on this project in the book um that is also about a rose for emily and i just it was just a weird thing that synced up at the right time but i'm flying through this book is it a novel or a a novel Mm -hmm. And um, also on the podcast front, uh, Undisclosed, which is another sort of serial spinoff, so it's uh, something that people did in response to serial. They are now doing a series on the killing of Freddie Gray, and it is the most uh, granular look at this case I've ever seen, and it's really fascinating. There's probably a lot of stuff that people don't know, and I would really recommend listening to it. And it's, uh, the name again? It's undisclosed, but it's specifically the the episodes about the killing of Freddie Gray. All right. Kate, what have you got for us? All right. Uh, I am reading a book called More Than Petticoats, 
remarkable Connecticut women. I'm reading this because uh, I'm teaching about uh, our state heroine, Prudence Crandall, and it's very accessible, and I recommend it. And also in the popular history category, reading category, I just started All Souls, a family story from Southie, and that's by my, Michael Patrick McDonald. And my first teaching was at South Boston High, and so I have a special interest in it. And he, he's talking about how um, violence and, and drugs and gangsters and depression affected his family and his community. And he's also talking about the love. And I got to give a shout out. There's so much bad news in the news, but I just love the women's U.S. the U.S. women's hockey team <laughs> that they did their job action and they got they won and they're getting paid and they're playing this weekend or tonight. Hmm. All right, and Jim Chapterlane. I get a couple of things here. Uh, the Brain Injury Alliance of Connecticut uh, is putting on an event at May 11th on May 11th at the Pond House in Elizabeth Park with uh, Kate Callahan and a little group called the Shinolas. And uh, that's a Thursday, and it's for a good cause. Uh, The Shinolas, I should say, are Jim's band, and they are great. Uh, Secondly, I don't want to make this too personal, but uh, Teresa and I are involved in a group called Indivisible, and uh, we are sort of a clearinghouse for your resistance uh, uh, opportunities, and and we appreciate your business. We've grown it from uh, zero people to 1,800 people in about three months, and uh, we're very excited about it. It's a very, uh, it's a cool way to express your dissatisfaction. And, and in a micro way, there's a little uh, thing you can do on your phone called ResistBot, uh, where you dial 50409 and type the word resist, and it will prompt you. And it will send a letter to your house rep and your two senators on whatever you want, and it'll be there within seconds. And lastly... Dave Chappelle just dropped two new comedy specials on Netflix. One of them I find mind-blowingly good, the one that he did in Los Angeles. The second one is a little more scatological, but it's still really funny if you like Dave Chappelle. But the first one is mandatory uh, viewing for challenging your views on race and everything else. But uh, that's it. Dave Chappelle, he's on fire. All right. So how do people find Indivisible and make sure they don't get the NPR show can't believe you guys stole our name, man. I think uh, the easiest way is if they went to indivisiblect.com, and then from there you can get to the Facebook group. You can get to other things. Twitter. Yep. Indivisiblect.com. Yep. Or okay. in, on Twitter, it's indivisiblect. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, indivisiblect. We have a closed group. All right. So um, I'm going to quickly endorse the cartoons of Jack Ziegler, who died, I guess, last week. Uh, if you go to the New Yorker website, you can find an in-memoriam Jack Ziegler by uh, Bob Mankoff, who's their cartoon editor. Um, Jack Ziegler was one of my favorite New Yorker cartoonists. I just look at some of those cartoons. They'll make you, they'll make you laugh. Um, getting ready for an, ev- an event about words, I discovered the Lingua Franca blog. It's on the uh, it's part of the website of the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is chronicle.com. Lingua Franca has great contributors like Ben Yagoda and Lucy Ferris, who's on our show sometimes. Uh, it's just a great, if you like words and, and you like people pulling apart words and how they're being used, uh, it's a great uh, great resource for that and nice little essays and stuff. And um, a, a lot of us, I recommended it on an email and then everybody wound up reading it. There's a fairly long but uh, very, very fast read by David Owen in the current issue of The New Yorker. It's about hearing aids and loss of hearing. It's, David Owen is like my favorite New Yorker writer. I, he could make anything interesting and fun for me to read. 
I looked at this thing and I thought, do I really care about hearing aids? Well, it turns out I do, and I do care about hearing loss. And also, even if I didn't, David Owen would really make it interesting. So, I mean, I'm just such a David Owen fan boy. And then lastly, last night I saw Next to Normal. And I actually would probably need more time to say everything that I would like to say about this. It's at Theater Works. Uh, it's directed by Rob Ruggiero, who we know can really direct a musical. He's directed fabulous productions at uh, the Good Speed. Uh, and here he is in his home theater doing – this is a difficult musical. First of all, it's about mental illness. It's about sort of really kind of the modern version of mental illness uh, and, and treating it with, uh, with strong uh, pharmacology. Um, it's also about so much more, though. It's about a family trying to stay together, about a woman trying to keep herself together. It's very much about the relationship between women and their sons, too. I think it gets more of that accurately than almost anything that I can think of and and in a very weird way. There's sort of a spoiler with Next to Normal that I, I'm avoiding telling you about. But I'll also say that Theater Works is 190 seats, which is – I've seen the, the, the big kind of Broadway-style production. I saw it on the national tour with Alice Ripley who became very famous uh, for her performance in this role. Christiane Knoll I think is the name of the woman playing it here. She's terrific and in a 190-seat theater, you can really see her face. Her face is very expressive. This is an incredibly emotional work. Uh, last night, people were crying at the end of the first act and they were really crying in the second act. And it, it is a very moving uh, I mean, I, I've now seen it twice, and both times I've been very emotional during the second act. So um, I'm really highly recommending this. It's uh, Rob's done a great job with this. You don't usually think about the lighting very much, but the, actually the lighting design on this is spectacular. The set, which involves a kind of lazy Susan turntable device, but but also uh, a, a lot of other stuff. Uh, it, the set's great, and the actors play a lot, a lot out in the audience. They're out in the audience, in the aisle space a lot. So um, it makes the, the theater, which is already small and intimate, seem even more small and intimate. So, um, How does this run? It's good. I think they've extended it through May, so people have time. Um, but anyway, just a, it's a great show, Next to Normal, and, and it's a tough show to s stage. The music isn't wonderful the way, say, a Sondheim musical is or something. It's it, the music's kind of up and down. There's like four or five great songs and then a ton of songs that are almost like operatic recitatif. But um, I don't know. Somehow or other, it all pulls together and has a, a big emotional punch. All right. Well, thanks very much to all who helped out today, but especially our wonderful panel, poet Kate Russian, musician Jim Chapdelaine, writer and uh, editor uh, Teresa Kramer. will be back on Monday with The Scramble. Hi, I'm Kion Wolf. I'm here for my private dinner meeting with Mike Pence. Sorry, miss. That won't be possible. Hi, I'm Kion Wolf. I'm here for my private dinner meeting with Mike Pence. We'll send someone right down.